welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Victor, and in this episode, I'm going to be talking about how to run a bug hunt successfully. As we think about moving into the new school year, I hope that teachers will try and make more use of outdoor spaces. Now, a staple activity for being an environmental educator and working in an outdoor space is the classic bug hunt or mini beast safari. And it's also a super easy activity to do as a family in almost any outdoor setting. Whenever we do this activity, we really are counting on finding something for kids to look at. And I've got some tips for success in finding invertebrates. Then I'll be going through a very quick who's who of reliable invertebrates to expect, and finally some suggestions for how to effectively plan lesson plans incorporating this activity. So part one, setting up the space. If you're a teacher and you're looking at making more use of outdoor spaces and you're quite keen on doing some bug hunting on your own but you're not really sure because you've never done it before, first thing to do is have a think about setting up the space that's available to you to increase your chances of success. Step one is to identify a space that you can set aside for wildlife and ideally it should be relatively undisturbed so you don't want to put it in areas where kids really like to play all the time because if the habitat is too disturbed then you won't have very much success when you're looking for invertebrates. If there's a little bit of disturbance that's going to be okay but you don't want it to be a super high footfall. Kids are going to be playing with it every single day. If you can, think about finding a few different spaces where you can set up a few different habitats because that'll just maximize the range of different invertebrates you're going to be able to find and also allow you to go to specific places depending on what the weather is like and what the conditions are like to really maximize your chances of success. One habitat that works particularly well at almost any time of year in almost any weather condition are wood piles or log piles. If you can, try to get largish pieces of wood if you're going down the route of going with firewood. Bigger pieces, kids are less likely to drag them around and, and play with them. They'll also last longer, they won't break down as quickly. What you're looking for is something in the 40 to 60 centimeter length range and roughly 10 centimeters in diameter. That's a good compromise in terms of size so that most kids will be able to look under the logs relatively easily. The logs taking a while to rot down so you don't have to replace them every year or every couple years. Also it means that you won't need too many logs to get a decent sized pile. If you've got much smaller sticks, you know, five centimeter, even if it's five centimeters in diameter, suddenly that's four or five times as many pieces that you're going to need to get the same size of log pile. If you can, have more than one pile and what this will do is it will allow kids and students to actually spread out when they're looking for creatures in that habitat. If you don't have easy access to logs or if for whatever other reason it's not going to be possible, you can also try using upside down flower pots. That provides that dark, cool, moist environment and you can also fill some of these flower pots with a very coarse wood chip and what that will do is it'll provide that slowly rotting organic matter that a lot of log pile invertebrates are looking for. The next really good habitat to have are bushes and shrubs. With these you can shake the branches and catch the things that fall out using a beading tray or something else just underneath the branch. You put a even a, lamb, a piece of paper underneath will work, something that the creatures can fall onto. 
If you're planting bushes and shrubs for this purpose, try to choose shrubs or bushes or small trees that are native to your area that grow there. The reason you want to do this is because the invertebrates living in your area will have evolved to feed on those species. So you're more likely to find things, particularly caterpillars, which can be quite picky on their food plants. So if you pick bushes and shrubs that would naturally grow in your environment, you're more likely to get the butterflies that live in your area. Here in the UK, willows and elms work particularly well. They're really robust, hardy trees. They grow fairly quick but also they host a whole range of butterfly and moth species, so you're more likely to find a good range of caterpillars in the summers. Plants from the rose family also work quite well, but they can be quite thorny, and the thorns are not, they're actually more of a risk to your equipment than to the kids, because once the kids have learned to recognize, ah, this is the blackberry bush or this is the rose bush i know it's going to have thorns they won't touch it kids are pretty good at self-regulating once they've been once they're made aware of what the potential risk is but if you're going to be using things like nets in the area they're more likely to try and swish nets through shrubs and if there's thorns and things your net will get caught and potentially torn you might be able to find thornless varieties of blackberries and roses those exist um, and those will work as well because they're closely related to the wild ones. They've just been bred to not have thorns. So if you would like something along those lines, blackberries, raspberries, roses, um, go to your garden center, look for thornless varieties. And the third really good habitat to maximize your chances of success on a bug hunt are meadow or grassland areas. With these, it's really, really tempting to go with wildflower meadow seed mixes, which are really easy to get a hold of. And they are very pretty and they do host very many species, but most of these will be very wildflower heavy. And often the species included, while they are great for insects, they're often not robust enough to handle regular investigation by kids. If you're using sweep nets, what you'll find is that the nets will tend to take off a lot of the flower heads and a lot of the species don't bounce back very well after they've been trampled. Grasses are a lot more robust to trampling. They've actually evolved to handle being trampled and eaten by herbivores, so they can handle being investigated by kids. And they stand up to sweep netting really well as well. So while most places would recommend that you actually avoid grasses when you're setting up a wildflower meadow for wildlife, if you're setting up this habitat for use by students, by your kids on a regular basis, you actually probably want to go with a more grassy mix. If you're feeling a little bit ambitious, you can also grow things like wheat and barley. These are grasses as well, and so they're fairly robust. And if you let them produce their seeds, you can actually in the autumn harvest your own bird seed for use in the winter, so that's kind of cool. When you're putting together your own wildflower meadow areas, once you've picked your grasses, you probably will want to include, at least here in the UK, a flower called yellow rattle. These are quite common in natural wildflower meadows. Yellow rattle parasitizes grasses, so it takes some of the nutrients from the grasses growing in the area. It reduces the vigor of the grasses and allows other wildflower species to kind of compete with these really tough grasses. Then start thinking about other flowering plants you might want to include. And again, think about ones that are going to be really tough and robust. A really good one are clovers. 
There's also buttercups, wild geraniums, and the mint, uh, the mint family. So you can grow normal mint, or there's plants like marjoram as well as in the same family. And these are all really tough, vigorous plants. They're tough enough to compete against the grasses, and also they regrow really well if they're damaged by vigorous investigation by kids. Next step, you've identified the spaces that you can use. You're thinking about what kinds of different habitats you might put in. You also need to consider how kids will access the space. So raised beds are really great for this because you can put these pretty much anywhere. If you don't have a field, but you have a paved over playing area and there's a corner of it that could be set aside, you can put a raised bed there. So put a little border around it, fill it with soil, and then you can turn it into a meadow or a log pile. You can plant a shrub in it. The other great thing about using a raised bed is that it acts as a really subtle indication to not walk on it. So if you're growing a, a meadow area, a subtle indication that kids shouldn't run around through it and play on it is to have it be in a raised bed because that's slight differentiation in height. And if you maintain the area around it slightly differently, you know, put down a wood chip mulch, that differentiation in height and surface area is a really subtle indication to the kid. This area with the wood chip, it's clear that that's for walking on. This raised bed area with plants growing on it is different, so you shouldn't walk there. It acts as this subtle reminder, so it'll reduce you needing to reinforce any rules on it. If your school has beds or borders along any of the paths, you might have one of those be the meadow area that you use. That way kids can access the meadow from the path. They don't actually have to walk through it and trample it. Another option, if you've got a larger area that you can set aside as a meadow, is to mow a path through the meadow and leave the rest of it unmown. And again, this is this subtle indication that, ah, there's an area here that is for walking. And you'll notice this if you're walking through a field normally. If you've got a waist-high field, but there's a path through it where it's clear someone else has walked, you're going to tend to try and take that path. Generally, people won't be walking through waist-high grass if they can see an easier route where someone else has walked before. And that's what mowing a path through the meadow does. It gives you this indication that, ah, this is where someone walked before. It's a bit easier. I can walk through there. I'm not going to need to be pushing my way through this waist-high grass. And again, that will reduce the need for you to enforce rules to not trample on a certain area. If you're really tight on space, another option is to use plant pots and plant them up with a mix of grasses and flowers. Obviously, pick the largest one that you can, and preferably, if you're doing a meadow, try and choose a very wide one. Bigger pots are going to be better for this because it's going to give you a bit more area to work with, but also larger pots you don't have to water so, so often, um, so that'll reduce the maintenance. Next tip. Don't over-design the space. Log piles, which are too rigidly or neatly arranged, will quickly look like a disaster zone. Now, leaving things as they found it should, be, of course, be the goal, and your class might be better at that. But another option is to have a log area instead of perfectly lined up stacks of logs. Try setting aside time at the end of the lesson for tidying. If you try to do it in the middle of a lesson, this can be really difficult because once kids have found creatures, they'll want to spend time looking at the creatures and it'll be a real struggle for you to get them to tidy up the space. However, if you save cleaning till the end, that'll mean that the kids have had a good length of time with their creatures. The really big excitement of the find will have kind of settled down a bit 
and they'll respond to you a bit quicker when you ask them to tidy up. If you don't have your own space to set up for wildlife but still want to look for invertebrates, you can also look for these same habitats in local parks, look for pieces of wood on the ground, uh, look for shrubs and areas of tall grass to look for these invertebrates. Right, so you set up some space or you found a, a part of a local park that you think would be a good target for bug hunting. What can you expect to find there? First, you've got ants. They live in really big colonies, so they tend to be almost everywhere in fairly high numbers, so odds are really good that you're going to be finding some ants. When you do find ants, a good thing to encourage kids to do is to not collect them right away, but maybe follow the ants around and see if you can follow them back to wherever their nest is. Kids might also follow these ants to their herds of aphids, sap-sucking insects that they'll milk for the honeydew that these aphids produce, and it's actually their, their waste, it's their poop. And it's this sugary substance that the ants really love to drink, so that can be quite neat as well. You can follow the ants to their home or off to their herds of, of livestock almost. You might also want kids to look out for soldier ants. So these will be members of the same ant species that have the role of protecting the rest of the colony and often these will be a bit larger than the rest of the workers and often they'll have these wider heads with bigger jaws because that's their main role is to basically bite things to fend them off. So the next really reliable species that you'll find in almost all weathers are of course the wood lice. These you'll find under wood or under fallen leaves and they like dark cool damper places. With these woodlice, you might encourage kids to pay really close attention to how many different kinds of woodlice have they found. You'll find that woodlice can be roughly split into these two groups. You'll have kind of flatter woodlice, and then you'll have ones that are a bit more rounded. And it's the ones that are a bit more rounded which can curl fully into a ball. The slightly flatter shaped woodlice, you'll notice that they can't quite fully curl up. You might also encounter woodlice that look almost white. And these would be newly molted woodlice because woodlice, when they're growing, they need to shed their exoskeleton. And in the time after they've molted, the new exoskeleton underneath won't have fully hardened, won't have fully developed the color yet. So you'll find these uh, lighter colored woodlice. Another thing to look for is to flip over the woodlice. And if they don't curl up on you, have a look near the tail end and you might find white patches or spots. These are for breathing and they're they're kind of like gills in that they need to stay a bit moist in order to properly exchange oxygen with the air. And that's why you find woodlice in these cool damp places. So so ants and woodlice, you'll find them in all weathers. On really rainy days or on slightly damp days, it can be a bit more difficult to find quite a lot of other invertebrates. Um, a lot of things like beetles, butterflies, even ants, they'll be taking shelter underground or under leaves so they can be a bit more difficult to find. But what does come out in the rain, of course, are the slugs and snails. These are excellent groups of invertebrates to look out for because it's really easy to study them in quite a lot of detail. And that's because there's not too many species of slugs and snails, at least here in the UK. So you can really become familiar with the ones that are in your area. Often you can identify them just from the shape and patterns on their shells. No dissection, no microscopes required. So you can become a snail expert. 
a really good detail to look for is a hole on the side of their head or on their neck. This is the pneumostome and it's for breathing. So you'll sometimes see this hole open up and if you bother them, they'll kind of close it down again. Now, of course, it'll be much easier to find slugs and snails on wet, rainy days because they like that moisture. They need it to help keep their bodies nice and moist. But even on sunnier days, you can still find them. Check, again, under logs or upside down flower pots. Okay, so now we've got our bug hunting space. We're aware of some of the really reliable ones that we're really likely to find. Next step, how do you actually plan an effective lesson incorporating this activity. The starting point is, of course, what do you want the kids to learn from it? If what you want the kids to get out of a lesson is to develop an appreciation for animals or a habitat, then when you're thinking about the lesson or the session, spending time in the environment and with the animals is what is most important. Being an interested adult and sharing in the experience is the most important support to give to the kids. And so what's going to happen during this session is it's going to be fairly open and freeform. You're going to allow the kids to take the lead in what they want to do and what they want to know. Your role is going to be to monitor interactions with the habitat and the animals to keep the kids safe and make sure that the animals are treated with respect and to keep disturbance to the habitat at a reasonable level. A range of equipment being available will be helpful and it's not going to be necessary for them to use any of it. You might provide things like sweep nets, you might provide trays or containers to put creatures in, paper and pencils for drawing or making notes. There might be a camera, you might have field guides available for identifying. But because this is about developing an appreciation for the animals or habitat, my suggestion would be to not require them to use any of that equipment, but to use the equipment as a way of extending the amount of time that they're able to engage with that habitat. So for those kids who are kind of done looking through that environment, that's the point where you might direct them to some of the equipment that's available to give them a different way to interact with the animals, a different way to interact with the habitat to keep that interaction, that engagement with the habitat going. In terms of your introduction, it's going to be pretty light touch. Mostly it's going to be about health and safety stuff, how to use the equipment that's available, and how to handle the animals properly so that you don't injure them. A good topic to explore with a bug hunt is habitats. Frame the whole activity as investigating what lives in these different habitats. This activity is going to become a bit more structured, so you might have groups of kids collecting invertebrates from different microhabitats within that space, or maybe have dedicated containers for each one. So Creatures caught from the meadow go in one container. Creatures from the log pile go in another container. And what that will do is it'll allow the kids to come to those creatures and compare what animals they find in those different habitats. Your role in a habitat session would be to structure interactions with the habitat. So pointing out different locations, which might be good for further investigation, and when talking to the students about what they found, steering that discussions towards where the animals were found and what they might have been doing there. Bug hunting also lends itself towards discussions around classification, sorting animals into different groups. Here you're going to frame this looking for invertebrates with discussions of what types of invertebrates they might find, what groups of animals do they know about, 
When it comes to the activity itself, the collection portion becomes a bit less structured again, but it's what you do with these creatures that you've collected that becomes more structured. So you might have kids sort animals into different groups based on features or characteristics that they can see, or they might isolate individual animals for closer observation. With this session, you're going to want to devote more time to observation of the things that they've collected, um, whereas if they're exploring habitats, you might want to devote more time to the collection portion so that they can spend more time in particular habitats so that they become more familiar with them and can compare the different habitats. Going back to classification, my suggestion would be to consider strictly limiting the number of different invertebrates that they observe. So while they may have collected a whole bunch of them, ask them to choose a few or maybe even just one invertebrate to observe more closely and then return all the rest of them. Your role in a classification session during the collection phase becomes, again, just monitoring health and safety and animal welfare. But once the invertebrates have been collected, then your role becomes focusing the group on observing the invertebrates and applying the classification skills that they may have learned in class or the knowledge about different invertebrate orders. Now with both of these more subject-oriented bug hunt sessions, it can be really helpful to refocus the group between collecting invertebrates and observing them. In that refocusing portion, it can be useful to recap the concept. And what this will do is it'll refocus the kids on the objective of the session because they will have completely forgotten while they're doing the bug hunt because that's really exciting and they're really focused on what they're doing rather than what they're learning. So breaking things up, sitting them down again, recapping, helps them move their mind away from what they're doing towards what they're supposed to be learning. It also settles energy levels and that will make it safer for the animals actually. If they're a bit less excited, they're less likely then to want to shake things around to get the animals to do anything, which can be really dangerous for the creatures. In general, if you're looking to use outdoor spaces a bit more, if you're looking to do more bug hunts, what that will do is allow you to have that first bug hunt just be about that exploration and developing an appreciation for the animals and that habitat. It lets them really do what they really want to do and explore that space. Then on the second visit, you can bring in that subject, that content area, where they're going to be a bit more constrained in the exploration, but because they will have already had that time to explore the space in whatever way they want, they won't necessarily feel that same need to explore every single nook and cranny anymore. It'll allow them to be a bit more targeted in what they do, and they'll be you know, less conflicted about spending time focusing on the topic instead of exploring the, the habitat and all the creatures that live there. Now with any of these sessions, don't be afraid to bring classroom elements out of doors to help you out. Things like whiteboards with instructions or keywords on them, if they help you in the classroom, they can still help you outdoors. Students who benefit from the support of these tools will still benefit them in the out of doors. The tricky bit is just finding a space to put them, but you can just lean them on something on the ground. That can work as well, as long as students know where to go if they need to look up those keywords or those instructions. As always, having familiarity with the site is absolutely invaluable. 
learn the locations where you can count on finding things. That way you have a fallback. If the kids are really struggling, you can tell them that secret spot where they're almost guaranteed to find something. Being aware of what animals you find reliably in your area will also allow you to develop your own resources which link to what you find in your area much better. Kids can lose a lot of time flicking through those commercial field guides which will cover maybe all of Europe or all of North America and they can get really distracted by all the other exciting invertebrates that are out there but that they won't be finding in their area. And my final tip for running a successful bug hunt is to choose your areas based on the weather. So in hot dry spells grasses and shrubs work really well. You'll still find all those things like grasshoppers and bugs and beetles on the plants. Whereas log piles can be a real pain to use if it's been warm and dry for a few days because all those creatures will have moved underground where it's still a bit moist and you'll end up needing to move your entire log pile to find anything. Now you can cheat a little bit by watering the log pile a few hours before use and what that can do is encourage creatures to move back up into the logs, but you're probably better off using nets in the grass on those hot, dry days. If it's a bit wet and rainy, then go for the log piles, and that's because nets and things can become really wet and soggy, being swept through wet grass, and when the netting gets really wet, it becomes heavy, and it's easy for bugs to become injured or to drown in soggy nets or in wet trays. So log pile creatures tend to be a bit better at, at handling wet damp conditions. So I hope you found this episode helpful in planning your own bug hunts. If you've got any questions or comments, of course, please send them in to us, knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at kn underscore podcast. And as always, full notes will be available at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. That'll be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.